Anyway, so I'm going to be talking this morning uh, about leadership for maturity and looking at a passage of scripture, actually, I don't think in my life I can remember preaching on, and yet it's a very important verse for me, which is verses for me, which is in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, that would be really helpful. Whilst, I'm, uh, whilst you're doing that, can I just prophesy over people? Is that okay? No, actually, you're looking too scared. Maybe I'll, I'll stand back here and... Uh, Everyone suddenly went white from looking suntanned, and this is a nice day to sort of flip in. Heck, stay where on this set. Actually, what's your name? Stephanie. Just as I was watching you in worship, I felt God wanting to say to you that God has got a, a very unique purpose for your life. And uh, I felt God said that uh, He wants to encourage you in terms of gifts which are both writing and artistic, and that. God is going to use you quite evangelistic with these gifts. What you might think of as being just normal things, actually, God's going to use evangelistically. And uh, God's saying you've got like a, a sewing kit of, of helping to bring lives together and touch people who are hurting, people with difficulties, people who don't know Jesus. And you're going to help not just share the gospel, but bring them into the family of the gospel and bring togetherness in your life, in your ministry. And there's sort of an encouragement. What you might think of your life at the moment is very normal and just doing the normal things a student does. Actually, God's looking over it and saying, actually, these are gifts which I can use uh, for my glory. So we're all in Ephesians 4, amen? Well, just to help you, before we look at this passage, I want to put up some images, and uh, I can look at this screen. And I'd like to have one of these screens at West Point. And uh, I'm going to show you some pictures and see if you can spot the difference. Are we ready to go with those, Will? Because uh, that would be helpful. Okay, here we have some blood. There's uh, one and two, two different types of blood there. And the next picture is of Castle, Corf Castle on the left. Is that Leeds on the right? I think it is. And the next picture... On the left, you have Malcolm Kays, who leads Woking Churches. That's his humorous. He's not so humorous about it, but that's his shoulder with all the plate, metal plates and pins. And on the other side, you have what is a normal shoulder, what a normal shoulder looks like. Now, what's the difference between those slides? Let me tell you. It's unity. When things get broken, like shoulders into eight pieces when blood does its own thing and starts to coagulate as it does with sickle cell anemia and when Corf Castle gets broken into bits uh, it doesn't really perform in the way it was designed to perform and I want to talk to you this morning about unity I want to suggest to you this morning that God takes unity of his church incredibly seriously Ephesians, if you've got Ephesians 4 open, you'll know that as Paul has described Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the glorious, wonderful gospel that rescues us and the wonderful church, this whole purposes of God throughout eternity, this mystery now revealed in Christ through the church, this multi-layered, multifaceted wisdom of God, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, the manifold wisdom of God now revealed in the church. Can you believe that? The church reveals something of the wisdom and glory and majesty and power and salvation of our God. Now, 
If Christ achieves all that through the preaching of the gospel, through the winning of lives and the bringing them together in a church, it's interesting to note as Ephesians 4 gets into the practicalities of how we outwork our wonderful salvation, Ephesians 4 verse 3 says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And he talks about the oneness, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Why does Paul write that unity is so important? Why is unity important to what we're doing in this place this morning? Because we are born again on a battlefield. The Christian life isn't like a battle, it is a battle. From the minute you breathe your first breath of spirit-filled air, you are made aware that the world around you is out of sync with God and at war with God and you are swimming against the flow. And we have an enemy. We have an enemy who wants to stop the church advancing, to stop the kingdom advancing. Remember when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Why did he say that? Because he wants us to understand there is a real battle, a real battle with real opponents, spiritual forces that oppose every step we take of faith in Christ. And the enemy knows this. A truth that we can often repeat to each other but actually don't know really the power of it, that united we stand but divided we fall. If he can get into the church, if he can get the church into factions, if he can get people falling out with one another, as even Rob was sharing this morning, if we can get a grumbling spirit, don't the churches love a grumbling spirit? We just love it. We notice that person in church this morning just looks grumpy. I want to get over and speak to him. Hey, what are you grumpy about? Well, did you know that, oh, no, I didn't. Now I'm getting grumbly as well. This is great. Why don't somebody else come and join us? We can get into this factions and splits and divisions. And so the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, says, make every effort. Sweat. Sweat about it. Sweat blood over it. To maintain what Christ has achieved for us. Because this, when we are united as brothers and sisters in the church, we unleash heaven's blessing to a city. When we are divided, when we can't even agree together in prayer, then our power is dissipated and our voice is muted and our effectiveness goes. So we're going to look at unity this morning from Ephesians 4 and how God is encourages us to achieve that and uh, where we find that. So we're going to look from verses 7 down to uh, verse 16. And first of all, I want to suggest to you, the first thing we need to be united on is the gospel. Point one, united, we stand on the gospel. Verse 7, but to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul restates or retells Psalm 68 in another way. 
And he says in, Psalms, in Psalm 68, Psalm 68 was a magnificent psalm in the Old Testament. You'll know it because it begins, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Psalm 68 describes David's wonderful uh, bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into the central place in Jerusalem. It was the day of days. It was the day of shalom. It was the day when people would bring their tributes and their gifts, when the enemies, the slaves would be brought forth and we would understand something of God's majesty and the king's majesty as he rules over the whole of that area, that whole of that nation. And what Paul says in Ephesians 4 is what happened in David's life was a foreshadowing of a greater shalom, a greater victory achieved in Christ. Because he says there was one who lived in the realm of heaven, the one who was utterly glorious, lacking in nothing, the one in eternal unity with his Father and with the Spirit, who descended, descended to the lowest place. Jesus took on flesh. You sometimes meet Christians and they say, or meet unbelievers, and they say, does God understand what it's really like? God took on flesh. God knows flesh. He knows its weakness. But that wasn't just the lowest place. Jesus took on the lowest place, He took on the carpenter's role, he took on the preacher's role, and he set his face like flint towards a cross, even death upon a cross. And Jesus descended even lower to that place where, forsaken by God and rejected by man, he was killed and buried in a tomb. He descended to that lowest place where he died. The Son of God physically died. And in that place, Paul wants us to understand, in that place of what looked like finality, in that place of captivity, as the stone was rolled over the tomb, in that place of triumph where it seemed that Satan had got the greatest upper hand over God and God's Son, at that place of utter uh, humility and frailty, God raised Jesus from the dead. In that place where it looked like there was no hope, in that place where it looked like Satan wins once and for all, that captivity can hold mankind captive for eternity, where sin wins and death wins, Christ is risen from the dead. The power of sin is once and for all broken for all time. The dungeon that slammed in man's face and kept him captive for eternity is suddenly burst off its hinges as Jesus is physically raised from the dead. The power where Satan who rules, the, rules this world and keeps people captive in their fears, in their bondages, is suddenly the chains are broken as Jesus ascends and breaks out of that tomb. He is the one, Paul says, who descended to that very lowest place and is now ascended to the Father's right hand, raised from, death, raised from the grave and then raised glorified in his Father's presence at the right hand of God. There is 
No way any preacher, there is no way any book, there is no way any library can ever describe fully the wonder and the glory and the majesty of the love of God in Christ Jesus for us who believe. It is an amazing gospel. The gospel is powerful to save the weakest and the lowest. The person who is in chains today in addiction or in chain to slavery. The gospel is good news. It has power to rescue. And it's good news first and foremost to the church. Because if we forget the gospel, brothers and sisters, the church just becomes a happy, clappy club. Where all we're worried about is where we're sitting on, how nice the coffee is afterwards. Whether we meet some friends. Now they're not unimportant. But the most important thing is this, Jesus. It's Jesus that makes the church the church. He's the great attraction. He's the glorious one. He's the one we want to hear psalms and hymns and spiritual songs sung about. Because Jesus is magnificent. And when you look at our world, when you think, oh no, what's going on? What's going on with ISIS? What's going on in our country? What's going on with FIFA? <laughs> Who cares? All the women. <laughs> no one's worried about FIFA. Men are. When you look at the corruption of our world, when you look at the power of our world of the enemy, we need to be convinced of this. There is no power of hell that can withstand Jesus. There is no life too far gone. There is nobody in this, in this room today who may feel condemned, who may have had a rubbish week, you may have sinned magnificently this week. I tell you this, we have a magnificent saviour. And that's why when Steve read it, my heart was thrilled, the worship was great because we were celebrating. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and not only that, will purify us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. What a magnificent saviour. Let's never move far from the gospel. That's where our unity comes from. It's the great leveller. None of us deserve to be saved. <laughs> Amazing grace. We find ourselves wonderfully saved in the family of God. Secondly, we need to realise that we, God takes unity so seriously. United we stand with leaders. So it says here in verse 11, it was Jesus, the one who ascended. Please note it's from that place of ascension. It's not when in his earthly ministry that he gave some to be apostles, it's the one who ascended who gave gifts to his church. The one who ascended gave gifts, some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why? Uh, to prepare God's people, that's us, the church, for works of service. In other words, we're all the full-timers in the church. Every member is a full-timer for Jesus. Why? So that the body of Christ, again, the example of the church, may be built up until we all reach unity. There's that word unity again, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of of Christ. Wow. God wants you, you as an individual, to grow up. If an elder comes to you this morning and says, grow up, he's only saying what the Bible's saying. 
Grow up not in terms of an outward performance, but grow up to become mature. Maturity is this, is looking like, speaking like, thinking like Jesus. The fullness of Christ. To encounter them is to encounter Jesus. Wow. So that's the aim. Unfortunately, we're not quite there yet. None of us are quite there yet. So God gives us leaders. Praise God for leaders because leaders are there to help you to be the very best believer, Christian, Christ's follower, disciple that you can be. So the church's work is not about trying to please the leaders. The leader's work is to try and equip the church to get you, us, to do the work of Jesus wherever we go, wherever we live, whatever we say. And so it's important in a day when we are cynical about leaders. You mentioned Seth Blatter and there was a great wave across the whole auditorium. Man of integrity or not. There is a cynicism about politics. Whether you mention a politician's name, we're pretty cynical about that, to be honest. We're pretty cynical actually about church leaders because we've all seen God Channel and we've seen these people wow they're fantastic and then the year after they're not quite as good as we thought they were and the trouble is and here's the challenge I want to bring to you today we can drink from that stream and bring that attitude to church and we can lose the benefit of leadership we can hear a leader say things and we can go that's what you think in fact, we can develop such an attitude, and I want to challenge every one of us here, such an attitude that if a leader says, everybody stand, there's something in us that goes, okay, I might physically stand, but inside I'm sitting down. We just don't like to be told. But actually, leaders, if, if we understand leadership correctly, leaders are there for your benefit. They're there to help you, to serve you. And in serving you, we'll often tell you off. So sometimes it feels like, I feel really sort of a bit battered this morning. Actually, it's only because, like parents, leaders love you and want you to be presented to Jesus mature. So what are these gifts that God has given, the ascended Christ gave to his church? Who are they? Well, first of all, apostles. The verb apostello is, means literally to send. Jesus was the great apostle of our faith. He was sent by the Father. Jesus himself sends the twelve. Now in everything I want to say about apostles, which isn't very much, we need to be very clear there are no apostles as in the New Testament 12 plus Paul today. There is nobody today who writes scripture. There's no one today who can speak with an authority that can count, counteract or contradict scripture. This is our final authority. We believe in the canon, the supreme, the finished word of God. Every ministry we talk about today sits under this word of God. Nothing can speak over this word. But apostles in every age, I would suggest to you, have, have been, there have been sent ones from the risen Christ to the church to do a specific task. That specific task we see in the Acts of the Apostles as well as other places as Paul describes apostolic ministry, 1 Corinthians for instance, where he talks about laying a foundation, planting a church, 
preaching the gospel and building a church. Apostolic ministry is about laying a foundation, planting churches, raising leaders, establishing churches, and then moving on to regions beyond, moving on to other nations. Apostolic ministry is about the Bible. It's about bringing other gifts to lay a theological foundation on which that church will stand. Apostles are team players. They come in in teams. They come in with other gifts to serve the church. And once they establish elders, which is their role, they move on. And the elders are responsible before God in terms of what happens in that church. There is the autonomy of the local church. It's seen in Scripture. So they're not superstars, they're not the best preachers or the best whatevers, they're just servants who are there to get new churches started. Got it? Prophets. Again, I need to be very clear here, when it is the ascended Christ who's giving prophets, we're not talking about Old Testament prophets who actually, we've got a whole canon of scripture with prophets who spoke who foretold and spoke the very words of God that are recorded. That is Scripture. We're not talking about men or women who have that type of gift. We're talking about a prophetic gift that works with apostles in starting a local church to give direction and clarity about what the church exists for, both theologically but actually pragmatically as well. When a church is started, if it started in the streets of in the slums of Mumbai or it started in the streets of Winchester, those churches will exist to do a lot of commonality, but actually very often very specific different things. And the prophets can come in and say, here is, is something in terms of God's big heart for your community, for your city that God wants you to build. And that local church identifies with that prophetic foundation and builds ministries and lives together to achieve that aim. Very important gift. Works very closely in foundational ways with apostles. It also raises the prophetic mantle the prophetic gifting on a church prophecy prophets should raise the expectation for prophecy in the local church then we look at evangelists now this is a gift which we would often get very wrong because we think of evangelists today very much in billy graham that's how we are almost instinctively when you talk to someone and say have you got an evangelist we think of a billy graham a big crowd and many people responding to the gospel. But if you read Ephesians 4, the evangelist's job is to equip the church. In other words, they are an equipping gift. They can do the work in terms of they can preach the gospel and see people saved, but actually, fundamentally, they're about helping you to win your friends for Christ, helping you to be a witness, helping you to know how to contextualize the gospel, how to understand the gospel, how to share the gospel in a university or share the gospel out in the streets or share the gospel with the poor. They're an equipping gift. It's a gift you need in this church. You need equipping. See, we often, as soon as we even hear the word evangelist, we all back off. We all think, Phew, that's not me. But actually it is you because you're all called to be a witness. And actually, being a witness isn't getting hands up for Jesus and how many people you've seen save scalps. Being a witness is being Jesus, loving people, being able just to talk to people. And the church needs to be freed up in that. 
Whenever you talk about evangelism to most churches, they go, actually, evangelism is great. It's just being Jesus to people. What would Jesus do in this situation? What would he do? I mean, I, 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 just, I just love waking up every day. I love going into town and thinking, I am Jesus to the world I'm going to touch. You see need all around you, and this is what Jesus would do. How many people do you see coming to church, guy? Come on, let's see. How many people have you seen saved? I'm not worried about that. I just want to touch people's lives and say, hey, I'm following the one who is the greatest one, and I want to do you good in his name. And when you start living like that, brothers and sisters, you start bearing fruit. Pastors and teachers, these are what we're all very familiar with, particularly in this church. You've had quite a few of them, very good ones. Steve joins a long list. But actually, most commentators would say pastors and teachers belong together. It's not two, it's, it's one. But just so we understand, what is the pastoring gift? The word is obviously shepherds. You need to realize that leaders are shepherds. So you need to think of sheep. You need to think of your sheep, sheep that are babies, little lambs that need to be fed and watered and cleaned. There are older sheep that can go astray. There are sheep that can get diseases. There are sheep that every day need feeding and tending. Now, the pastors in the church are not the shepherd. They are under-shepherds. So again, you sometimes get leadership, and this is always very sad, which bosses and beats the flock. That's not Jesus. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So when pastors speak, you should be able to hear Jesus' voice through your shepherds, under shepherds. Because they're saying, come this way, come, come, come. Let me lead you into pastures new. Teachers, and again, what a wonderful uh, resource you've had here of teachers Teachers are linked closely to the pastor gift because teachers cut the grass. Teachers enable lambs to be able to drink milk. Teachers enable scripture, which is quite difficult to understand for all of us. Teachers have got this amazing ability to make very sort of complex truth edible so that it does the youngest little lamb good and the oldest you or ram good as well. We need teachers in the church. So all of these wonderful gifts are here to equip the church, equip you to do your work of ministry. Now, hold up your hand to me because I'd like you to remember this message. Hold up your hand and point your hand to me. Now, remember the rebellion word earlier? Yeah, thank you. That's better. That little rebellion, all of you. Two hands went up. I could just tell it. You know, I'm not going to put my hand up. This is how we're going to remember. Keep your hands there. Now, this is going to really take, you know, see how much strength you've got. Right, thumbs, wiggle your thumb, good on you. That's the apostle, okay? The apostolic gift is the gift that can touch all the other fingers. It's the only finger that will do that, yeah? Try doing it with your little finger, you can't do it. The apostle brings in leadership into a church. It brings in the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, the prophets in order to help you to do your work. You still there? Okay, the next finger Point with the next finger. See, it's the pointing finger. You all point. You don't point with your thumb, do you? Whereabouts is uh, St. Catherine's Hill? Well, it's over there. No, you point. You point with your pointing finger. 
And what you're pointing, it's rude to point. Did anyone ever tell you it's rude to point? What are you doing pointing at me? Okay, you point because that's the way to go. We need prophetic foundations in a church because what does Hope Church exist for? It exists for hundreds more to be saved. It exists to go to the ends of the earth. It exists to be an apostolic resource church. We have got a pointing finger with a clear direction. The next finger, if you hold your finger hand up like that, now most of your hands, there's going to be a few exceptions here, but most of your hands, the tallest finger on your hand is that middle finger. Yeah? That's the gift that is just out beyond the church. The gift that keeps us touching the world out there on the quarry face. Stops the church becoming inward looking. It keeps us focused on our mission. The next finger on your hand, some of you will have a ring on it. I have a ring on mine. It's the wedding ring finger. It's the pastor. The pastor reminds us that we are wedded to Christ, that he is coming back again for a wedding day and he loves his church. And therefore, in the meantime, our job is to love the church and make the church a loving community. And then finally, if you put your hand that way and put it on your other hand, this is how to remember the teaching. Everything, every leadership gift must be grounded in the Bible. In the Word of God, the unchanging Word of God. None of those gifts can ever override the Word of God. We sit submitted to it. Amen? Amen. Okay, you can put your hands down. So remember, leadership there to unite us, because united we stand and divided we we fall. What is your responsibility before God with leaders? Well, Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority and to make their work a joy, not a burden. Your objective when you interact with leaders is they walk away with a smile on their face, not, uh uh-oh, and they walk away grumpy. Leaders aren't perfect. Leaders get it wrong. We're flesh and blood. We get it wrong. We get it wrong a lot of times. And if we're honest, we can... Share our failings on the front of a platform so that all of you can take encouragement that we've tried to evangelize and it's gone completely pear-shaped. Well, you can have a go. You're probably going to do better than me. We're flesh and blood. And most importantly, there is another judgment. All of us will be judged. Leaders have to face another judgment. And so before you enter into making a judgment on leaders, just remember, they stand before Jesus. And even though they might seem, sometimes when you see some news and some leaders and wonder what on earth God is doing, remember they have to stand before Jesus and give an account. Now thirdly, and this should be um, a little bit more fun, united we stand in the local church. Verse 14, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forward by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. And by the cunningness and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming, instead speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. I want to go back to those three images right at the beginning and I want to show you in these verses why each image is important. The first one is this, we are the body of Christ, we are God's people. And I want to talk about the blood, because have you ever come across that expression, blood is thicker than water? 
You ever come across that? Like stick and water. What do we mean when we say that? We often mean what is in the family more important than what goes on outside. That's how we normally use blood is stick and water. Actually, it's completely the inverse of how it was first ever used. Because it was first used, the blood of the covenant is stronger than the water of birth. Than the water of the womb. In other words, our relationships with covenant people are more important than our family. Wow! I, I can't really speak on this. It's such a massive challenge in our world today where family comes first and blow everybody else. Even church where it's way down the list in terms of family, family, family. No, actually Jesus says anyone who loves family, mothers, brothers, daughters, sons more than me is not worthy of me. You remember what happened when Jesus was preaching? They said, your mum's outside. He said, who's my mum? Who's my brothers, my sisters? I tell you, you are my brothers and sisters, you who do the work of God. Now, I want to just challenge us. I'm not there yet on this. And we had our family over last night. In fact, we've got our family, our grandson and my daughter and her husband living with us. Living with us. I mean, just, just come on, some sympathy here. Living with us for the next, I don't know, three, four. I mean, I thought it was going to be three or four weeks. When my daughter came over, they've been with us two weeks now. How long are you staying for? Well, we'll review it in September. Review it in September. That seems like a prison sentence. It's great. It's absolutely fantastic. I was woken up at five o'clock this morning by Max, our grandson, so I'm a bit tired. We had all the family over last night, about 10 of us in the room, laughing, joy. Heather and I came away and we said, God, we are so blessed. So blessed with our family. They're lovely. They're all going on with God and it's just wonderful. We all like each other and all seem to get on well. But this is where the rub is. How much do I love God's church? How much can I walk away? Because I can't walk away from my family. Max wakes me up at five o'clock in the morning. I don't, right, he's out. <laughs> Kicking him out. That's gonna, one or two warnings and that's the most we give him. And then he's on his bike or cradle, whatever. <laughs> no, we, we love family. We accommodate family. We work hard to build bridges. Well, Jesus says, blood is important. The blood of the covenant that's rescued us. This is how all men will know that you're my disciples, by how you love one another. And brothers and sisters, I honestly don't believe in the West we've got this right. If you come to West Point this year, you'll hear a man called Sam Albury, Anglican, who's going to speak on the whole issue of homosexuality and sexuality. And he will challenge all of us who listen to him that actually it's one thing to say that homosexuality isn't in accordance with God's plan and God's word, but actually, if we're going to really rescue people from that background, we have to provide them a loving environment where they can grow and find true, deep, deep relationships. And they can't do that if we are up drawbridge, running back to our family home, and then push off everybody else, even in the church. It's challenging. I, I, as I said, I'm really not there yet. We try, and we, we're always being challenged, Heather and I. But here's the rub. A family doesn't need to be perfect, it just needs to be united. And we're on this process of building unity together. Blood is thicker than water. We need to be united. Second image is of a building. It says here that infants are tossed back and forward by waves and blown about with every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in deceitful scheming. 
And we need to realize again we have an enemy that when we try and build, we'll try and divide. And there's the picture of Corfe Castle. When I ever take Indians around Corfe Castle, I say, I must take you to Corfe Castle, fantastic place near where we live. They always do the same thing. They always see it and go, that's a pile of boulders. <laughs> that's not a castle, guy. That's a pile of boulders. And of course, they're right. It was a beautiful castle. If you know the history of Corfe Castle, it withstood when Cromwell and, and the king's men were at war. The civil war raged in Britain. You'll know that from London right the way down to Cornwall, that every castle was destroyed. Everybody, the royalists were defeated. The parliamentarians were winning apart from one place, and that was Corfe Castle. And it was in, not until 1646 that it finally fell, and it finally fell by the cunning and deceitfulness of men where someone pretended to be one of the stewards in the castle, infiltrated the castle staff, and having opened the doors, let in the parliamentarian troops, which blew the castle up from the inside so it would never be a stronghold for the royalists again. One man! One deceitful schemer! And the whole of beautiful Corfe Castle will never stand again. I'll tell you this, when you look at the church of Jesus Christ, you'll realize beautiful churches have been destroyed by winds of doctrine, by the craftiness of men that have got in to places of authority and divided the church. And therefore we need to be men and women of the word and we need to be men and women who understand where there is unity, there will always be victory. But where there is disunity, there will always be defeat. And then finally, the body. From him, the whole body, that's the church, joined and held together as Malcolm's arm, just to remind us how painful when the body breaks up it can be. Joined and held together by every supporting ligament. We know, don't we, that Paul uses the body is an important image and a truth of what the church is like. But sadly, we don't often really understand what this means in terms of life. So let me illustrate, because you'll like this illustration. I have a friend in Bournemouth, Citygate Church, and he's really good with his DIY. He's got a chop saw. You know what a chop saw is? One of these rotating saws you bring down to chop wood. Well, he was doing this recently, and he forgot that in the way of the saw was not just the wood, it was also his thumb. And so his thumb, halfway down, flew and landed in a pile of sawdust under the chop saw. Now, we know, don't we, because we understand the Bible, that that thumb, all on its own, will be fine. The fact it's all in a bloody lump and in sawdust, well, it'll be fine there. It will survive it's got a way of surviving. It's part, part of the body, wasn't it? It's got to live or it will crawl its way someday back onto the thumb and make itself one again. Now we know that left in the sawdust, it will die. So he had to scrabble in the sawdust with his thumb pumping blood to find the thumb and take it to hospital and have it wonderfully sewn back on. I mean, they've just cut a little bit of bone out, but it's back on. And he's going like this to everybody. (laughs) His thumb's back where it should be. 
Now, we know that the truth of the matter is that injuries like Malcolm's and thumbs hurt and stop the body from functioning. Yet, I tell you the truth, so many people get offended in the church and disappear from the church and think, I don't need the church. The church is where all the problems are. I don't need the church. And they're like that thumb in the sawdust, like Malcolm's arm. They're in pain and they cause the body pain. You don't know this. Jesus knows this. You need one another. For your growth, for your health, for your life, for your joy, your happiness, God doesn't place that in your hands in an individualistic world. He places that in the hands of of others. And so we need one another. And what we need, as I finish this message, is we need unity where we all hear a message like this and go, yes. What would this church look like? Let me just, let, let, just use our imaginations. What would this church look like if when the elder says, we're all going to go out on the streets to share the gospel, every one of you turned out? What would this church look like if, if Guy said, hey, come to West Point this year because you are such a blessing to West Point. And every one of you goes, yeah, I'm going to be there. What would this church look like is when Steve says, we need an offering and all of you go, just tell me how much. We're all in. What's this church going to look like when he says there's a prayer meeting? You'll go, I'm going to be there. You see, united, you are unstoppable. And the enemy knows this far, far more than you do. And so we need to be convinced this morning, and even in our worship, and I loved our worship, great leading this morning on our worship, but even in our worship, what would this church, church look like when we obey 1 Corinthians? Every one of you has a song, a tongue, a testimony, a word of instruction, a hymn. What would it look like if everyone comes next week and there's like 50, 100 people queuing down the aisle saying, Steve, I've just got a word, got a word. Wow, what's it going to look like? 